0: Turn with me to Acts chapter 26, we We're going to be focusing on verses 12 to 18, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, In the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. One of my children this week was mocking people who are weirdly into the Lord of the Rings. None of my kids would directly mock the Lord of the Rings, you understand because they 're too cultured and they also know they would be disowned. However, some of them seem to have the impression that it 's open season on tolkien nerds and I can admit that some nerds have it coming to them, like trekkies, for instance, you know like i don 't really get them I, I understand but when they mock the, the losers who go so far as to teach themselves to speak Elvish. I take that kind of personally, because that was me. As I have admitted on other occasions, I not only addressed letters to Georgia in Elvish runes and things, and wrote her Elvish poetry, I also proposed to her in Elvish, so I defy anyone to out-nerd me on that front. But the, the true Lord of the Rings nerd... Knows that you have to read the books and not just watch the movies, right? But he also knows that once you have the movies, you cannot settle for watching the theatrical release. You must buy the extended versions and watch those, and you have to also feel very strongly that the movies, if anything, should have been longer. And today, looking at today's story, Paul is going to tell his favorite and most famous story, the story of how Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, but this time he's going to give us the extended version, because until now we've only had the theatrical release, and suddenly we realize, actually, Jesus said a a good bit more than was originally recorded back in chapter 9, and it's interesting because Paul and Luke as our narrator didn't see fit to mention it before. Now, we all know that with the Lord of the Rings, the reason that there was uh, an extended version is that Peter Jackson was holding out to make even more money. But why does Paul wait uh, to add these details until now? Maybe that will become more clear as we go through things, but I think it largely has to do with this new audience that he's speaking to. Last week, we, we began by looking at Paul's speech here before Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and all these city leaders in Caesarea, and we saw that in Paul's estimation, he's on trial for hope, right? Uh, hope is his crime. Hope is why he's in trouble. And we observed that hope is offensive to people especially when they don't share our hope. But in fairness, and I thought of this as reflecting on this, and we were talking about it, David and I, over lunch this week, A hope that is ill-founded, hope that has no basis in reality, is not only foolish, it can be dangerous. And when false hopes are dashed, it quickly leads to despair and bitterness, right? It's also true that unbridled optimism is not the same as gospel hope. They are not synonymous Some people are in denial about life's challenges, and that's not very helpful. And so false hope is every bit as silly as the critics say. I used as an example last week Ray Dininger's prediction that the Eagles were going to win the Super Bowl back in 2018, and left unsaid is the fact that if the Eagles had in fact lost that game, I wouldn't have been able to use that example, right? The fact is that example only works because Ray was vindicated on that February 4th. Otherwise, he would have been justifiably ridiculed. So Paul is on trial for hope, and I made the case that we should strive to be as guilty as he is, and just as guilty of the excessive hope of the resurrection. And I think that's a valid application, but it's a fair question to also ask where Paul's hope comes from. What justifies it? Where did it originate? He, he's made it plain that he, too, was once an enemy of hope, like his, uh, his opponents. So when did that change and why? Why? because if this hope is only rooted in his own inherent optimism or his naivete, then he is of all men most to be pitied by his own admission, and how, as he writes elsewhere, if there's no source, no fount of this hope, then the hope is discredited, and his hope would be just as empty as Eagles fans this year, for instance. But Paul, his former antagonism towards this hope, it, it now works in his favor a little bit in the course of the argument. Paul, of all people, could never be accused of of joining the church for his own advantage. There have been times in history you can read of where where kings and even whole nations were converted and got baptized, right? Because it would seal some peace treaty or get them out of trouble or something, right? Uh, And in some nations, you have in history where they had a state church of some sort, and in the, in the past you would have had to be a baptized member of that church to get a decent burial or to get married or any of the other basic necessities of life. And that usually means you have high membership rates in countries like that, but also low rates of actual belief among your members. Paul's story is quite different. He has sacrificed all of his former commitments, his, his friendships, his, his social status, his good record and reputation. He gave it all up. And he's had a lot of pain to show for it. So when he brings up this record, his record as an enemy of the church, an enemy of hope, uh, someone who had committed his life to destroying the church and ultimately breaking its spirit, he does this to set up the contrast, to explain how it came to be that he is now sitting here, two years imprisoned, not because he changed his mind, but because his mind was changed for him. So to start off, Paul's entire account here is extended a little bit, including the passage that I, I began with there that we had already read last week, those first couple of verses. Uh, if we go back to when we first met Paul, the first instance we ever saw him was he was standing there watching the coats of those who were stoning Stephen back in chapter 7. And in first the first verse of chapter 8, Luke records that something that was fairly obvious from what we would already seen in the scene, that Paul was in agreement with the decision. He's, he's over there nodding like, yep, give him, give him what for, right? And uh, we know from chapter 9, was in, his conversion was uh, initially recorded, that he was on his way to persecute the church in Damascus, which ended up being the same church that was, ended up uh, taking him in and that he ministered to for three years. But we could have walked away from that story, I think, thinking that Paul was something of a novice persecutor, I don't know if they apprentice such things, but, you know. uh, Luke had specified all the way back in chapter 7 that Paul was a young man who was standing around watching the coats. And we could be forgiven, then, for assuming that Paul has only a beginner's experience in persecuting the church. He's still studying the trade. He's new to this. But what Paul makes clear in this address is that he's done a great deal of this. And I'll reread those first few verses again, 9 to 11. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." So he confesses to persecuting the church in Jerusalem, a fact that was not recorded earlier. It says that he locked up many of the saints. Saint being an interesting term to to use in this room full of pagans. He's looking back now and seeing his victims and saying, these are saints, holy ones that I did this to. He says that as a junior member of the Sanhedrin, he was a reliable vote for a guilty verdict and for the death penalty for any Christian. He says he punished Christian sympathizers in all the synagogues and that he did it often. And he confesses to trying to make them not only recant, but blaspheme. Don't just deny Jesus, say something nasty and blasphemous about him. So he went out of his way to destroy their souls and not just their bodies, and he even says he persecuted them to foreign cities, plural. In other words, Damascus is not his first rodeo. Paul is saying he's much worse than what Luke has been willing to record so far. He was a heartless son of a gun. I had a different phrase in there before Georgia made me edit things. But Paul was more wicked than we even remember. He's saying, I was just like these guys who've been attacking me, only I was worse. Paul's doing a very strange thing here. He's distancing himself from his opponents, but in the wrong direction. He even goes so far as to admit that he did things like attacking believers in foreign cities, which was almost certainly not legal to do under Roman law. So Paul is confessing to all kinds of real crimes that he committed in opposition to this hope. But that background has to be understood to appreciate the wonder of what happens next. It's kind of like knowing that Marley is dead at the beginning of A Christmas Carol, right? It doesn't make sense. So now Paul surely has their attention, because something had to have happened, obviously. They're all going to be asking the question, well, what changed then? Where did this hope come from for you? Why are you on trial for the very thing you were trying to destroy? Well, Paul tries to explain. Verse 12, he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. These guys don't know the story that Paul's talking to. Of course, they weren't there, and they didn't read chapter 9 like we did, but we all know the story already, and it's actually, I think, the third time we've heard it because Paul told the same story from the steps of the barracks in Jerusalem back in chapter 22. It's a great story. It's one of the most dramatic events, really, in Scripture. It's very familiar to all of us as Christians, I think. And it's so good we don't mind hearing it again. That's fine. And again, you have Paul, that he's saying, I was traveling on a desert road. It's the Middle East, okay? It's hot, it's bright, it's midday, and he's telling you something outshone the sun all of a sudden. That's saying something. A midday desert sun is tough to outshine, and a voice from above starts speaking to him, and it turns out to be Jesus, and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus identifies with his people in their suffering. So when you pick on his church, you're picking a fight with him. It's a fascinating event. It was just as fascinating now as it was back in chapter 9. But again, we've seen this movie. We know these parts already. Except that Paul adds two little details in here, both of which are worth looking at just briefly. One is that he specifies Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language or Hebrew dialect. It was probably Aramaic, which is what Jews mostly spoke at that time. It's probably what Jesus spoke on earth. Now, he didn't emphasize that point when he told the story before. I'm not entirely sure why he includes it now. Um, What would that really mean to his Roman listeners to bring this up? I think it was significant, for instance, now when Paul was speaking to the Jews from the steps of the barracks in chapter 22, it said that he was speaking in the Hebrew dialect as well, and that was what silenced the crowd. But why is it significant that Jesus spoke to him in Aramaic on the road? I can only make a couple of guesses. I think partly it demonstrates the historicity of the event to include even mundane details, but it also reminds his listeners, and especially Agrippa, That this whole thing started as a Jewish thing. It's a Jewish event. That the man in question, this man about whom this whole resurrection debate surrounds, that man in question, the Savior, is in fact a Jewish man. And that he speaks Aramaic just like all the other locals. This entire dispute started as an internal matter within Israel. It's a debate over the resurrection and Old Testament theology. And the answer to the big question, is this resurrection thing a real, true promise in the Hebrew scriptures, received a pretty clear response for Paul that day. Because a Jewish guy who had very much died spoke to him and was very much alive. If he had spoken any other language, it also could have been anybody. A Roman could say, well, Paul maybe made a mistake. It was probably a Roman god of the pantheon. It could have been Zeus. But if the voice spoke Aramaic and with a slight Nazarene accent, that just might have been Jesus. It would be hard to confuse him with Zeus at this point. Paul also adds another small detail. But it's interesting largely because, look, this is Jesus' words. He says, Paul says that Jesus followed up the initial question, why are you persecuting me, with a statement. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a strange little phrase to suddenly remember, but it's interesting. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, first, you have to know what a goat is, I guess. Some translations will say, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Aside from being a funny word in our American context, that's probably the more literal Greek translation. Uh, It it really means it's a sharp point, is what it means, or even a bee sting. They would use the same word. But goad is also a valid translation, and it's a more accurate idea. A goad is a tool of animal husbandry. I'm no farmer. Reverend Green, you can correct me. Raise your hand if any problems come up, okay? Um, But it's basically a long, sharp stick, that you use for making an animal go where it wouldn't want to go. You make it go where you want it to. It's kind of like spurs, only a lot longer. Okay. Now, I don't know how much goads are used anymore. Is this a thing still? I don't know. Now, well, we what's that? Battery oh, battery charge. Oh, okay, well, that works, too. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> you see goads elsewhere in Scripture. Back in Judges 3, one of my favorite judges, uh, uh, Shamgar... Uh, Everybody's favorite, right? He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat. His whole story is condensed to one verse. It's wonderful. Um, When Alyssa was in 4-H taking care of pigs, her pig, Pansy, short for Pancetta, was impossible. And 4-H gave her this stick wand thing that you were supposed to guide the pig with. It didn't work. Pigs are horrible animals, which is why we should just always eat them. Um, You could just about wear yourself out, and we did, whacking this stupid animal with the stick, trying to get it to do anything. What was the stick called, Liz? That was not... Okay. You know what was wrong with that stick? It needed a sharp point. (laughs) This ridiculous thing had a blunt, rounded end with a plastic cover so you wouldn't hurt the animal or yourself. A sharp stick would have gotten better results, or an electric one, I guess, now that I know. In any event, uh, Jesus says Paul is kicking against the goads, which basically means Jesus has compared Paul to a stubborn barnyard animal. And I think the image is maybe more likely that of like a donkey or a mule, Uh, Now, Pansy the pig was able to frustrate and even injure us on occasion because we, as her caretakers, uh, we didn't have a proper goad and because she had her run of the pen, which meant that she could ram you, she could bite you, she could crush you against the walls or the fence. So that was more like a fair fight between us and Pansy, right? (laughs) However, if I am riding on a donkey's back and I strike it with a goad, he may get angry and try to kick me. But how do you kick someone who's on your back or who's at the other end of a six-foot pole? It's not possible. So what does kicking get you? It's not just hard. It's like licking your elbow. It can't be done. Actually, the word here for for hard, the way that that it's worded here, it's actually the Greek word scleros. It's the same word we get sclerotic from or sclerosis. It can mean hard as in calcified inflexible, rigid. What it implies is that Paul was becoming more rigid and more calloused and more stubborn as he kicked. And I think this is the first indication we have that Paul was not only attacking the gospel all that time, he was resisting it. Because the gospel call was aimed at him too. meaning that this visit from Jesus on the Damascus Road was not entirely out of the blue. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has been goading Paul toward obedience to the gospel, and yet he's been trying to kick against it. Now, you could perhaps argue that Jesus was saying something a little more to the effect of, Paul, give up, you're surrounded, don't even try to kick, meaning it could be read as a warning to kick, not kick against the goads as of now. Don't put up a fight. Like the equivalent of the cops saying, let's do this the easy way, Paul. You know. And that would make sense if Paul's never properly heard the gospel yet. In a sense, that's clearly true. That's a fine way to read it. After all, when the cops ask you, ask a suspect, if you're going to come easy, they're not giving him the option of not coming, right? They're implying you're coming anyway. The only difference is how much work you're going to make us do in the process. The end result is the same. And I don't think Paul has ever fully grasped the details of the gospel. Uh, He ended up learning that as he was tutored by Ananias and others. So I think seeing this phrase as, as Jesus simply telling Paul to come quietly, that's a fair and true enough reading of the passage. What I'm wondering is if maybe Jesus had been whispering to Paul before he had to shout at him that day. The question is whether Jesus is implying that Paul had heard the gospel call before now in some sense. Is this the first time he's been invited to follow Christ and lay aside his hostility, or is it the end of a long struggle between Paul and the Holy Spirit? I think we get a hint of the answer in the next section. The next few verses are are new territory. Paul or Luke, you know, has apparently been saving this punch for now, as it were. These are Jesus' words, and yet they were not recorded earlier in the original event or in Paul's retelling in chapter 22. In both cases, it simply says Jesus told Paul, you know, get up and go to Damascus, and then I'll tell you what to do next. But now we get the extended version, right? Look at what our Lord says in verses 16 to 18. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The main difference in this version of the story is that in this version, Jesus gives his reasons for saving Paul. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, have you ever wondered why God saved you? What he was thinking I mean, I know the proper theological answers and what they would be. I know that he does all things for his own glory. I know that he does it because he he loved us, yes. And we can't really find much better reasons than that, I suppose. We know it wasn't because of how awesome we are, right? Or because we already loved him just so much that he couldn't help but want to love us back. You know, this is not how any of this worked, right? No, salvation is motivated by his love, which no one can fathom, no one deserves, and his glory, which surpasses any understanding. And that's enough to know. I sometimes ask Georgia why she loves me, and she likes to say, because you're mine. That's cute. And it tickles me, and it seems kind of like a circular answer, but even a circular answer like that is good enough. The important point is that she loves me, not why. But God's love and God's glory, that's really broad, not to say esoteric or or, or sort of vague-sounding answers. Yet Paul was given a clear reason for the why. Jesus says straight up, I'm doing this to make you a servant and a witness. That is why I have showed up on the Damascus Road. And that answer applies to all of us, to you and to me, because yes, we were saved by God's glory, you know, for God's glory, and because He loved us. But we are saved with the intent that we will become servant witnesses. Being saved means we are now on a mission; we have a job. But notice something else that he says in there. What he says? What is Paul going to be a witness of? He says, to the, he's, "You're going to be a witness to me to the things." in which you have seen me, and the things where you will see me in the future. Well, the first half of that answer implies that Paul had, in fact, seen Jesus before. Well, it's news to me. Might be news to Paul, too. Because Paul never knew Jesus while he was on earth. It's possible maybe as a young boy he had seen Jesus in his travels coming to and from Jerusalem or something. We have no evidence of that, but it's possible. But I don't think those were the significant events that we're talking about. So what does Jesus mean by saying that Paul was to be a witness of the things in which he had, past tense, seen Jesus? How can he say this when Paul's never seen him before in his life, possibly? It's kind of like when you watch Sleeping Beauty, the cartoon, and, and you know, the, the, the Disney version, and when Prince Philip meets Aurora and, and they, they sing that song to each other, you know, I know you, I danced with you once upon a dream. I mean, that's cute and all, but it's absurd, right? I mean, we'll, we'll be polite, we'll call it poetic license. But I, I think Jesus is basically making the argument that Paul, even as an open and declared enemy of the gospel, had still seen him before. And that's a broader truth that Paul explores elsewhere, and you see it especially in the book of Romans. The world, being made by God the Father through Jesus the Son, cannot help but be a reflection of its maker. And likewise, the Holy Spirit sometimes spends years preparing someone to receive the gospel. He needles and pricks and prods. No living, conscious, intelligent person comes to the gospel completely ignorant of God and of Christ. Every unbeliever has seen Jesus, even if they didn't realize it, because they're surrounded. And that's why believers will often point back to their years before they became a believer, and they can point to those years, and they can still see God's hand in their life in retrospect, even as they were running from him. And it's also why Paul can write Romans 1, that unbelievers have no excuse for their unbelief because the glory of God's all around them. And this is why Jesus can say Paul has been kicking against the goads. The kicking did not start on the road to Damascus. That's where it came to an abrupt stop. Jesus is referring to Paul's entire life. Like every unbeliever, Paul has subconsciously been running from the truth. In spite of his outward religiosity, his zeal... His theological training, he was an enemy of God, kicking against the pricks. Everything around him reflected God's glory and the hope of the gospel. The Old Testament, which he was supposed to be an expert in, testifies to it. Even nature points to the resurrection. That's why Jesus commonly used agricultural imagery from everyday life to explain it. A seed dies, it gets buried, and then it rises up again. Why? Because the world reflects its maker. The only way you can keep from recognizing God's hand is by suppressing that knowledge. Unbelievers are by default in denial. They can't see because they refuse to see. So Jesus comes and shakes Paul down. It really was Jesus asking Paul, are you going to come quietly or what? Paul had no options and nowhere else to go, and now here he is in prison because Jesus gave him no choice. Paul thought he was chasing Christians, but he wasn't chasing them as aggressively as God was chasing after him. Jesus is tracking him down like a dog. But Jesus also made Paul a promise. He said, I'm going to deliver you from your enemies, both your own people, the Jews, and also the Gentiles, who are becoming your new mission field. Paul, who has spent his life up to this point hunting Jewish Christians, is now going to chase Gentiles for Christ. It was interesting to me that Jesus simultaneously promised to send him to and deliver him from the Gentiles. Interesting notes for ministry, you know means most of the people in this room Paul's speaking to, right? They're his mission field. They're also his biggest threat. Mission fields are dangerous places. I have to make a note to myself. This job could be dangerous. LVPC is where God sent me. It's also where I have to sometimes pray that he would deliver me, like that kind of thing. That's just the way kingdom work is, I guess. But all of this brings up a follow-up question. If we understand now why Jesus saved Paul and really why he saves any of us, and the answer is that he does it, For his own glory, because he loved us, and to make us servants and witnesses. But left on its own, that feels like, all right, that's part of the answer. The original question that Paul's listeners are asking are, what are you doing here? Why do the Jews hate you so much, and why did you appeal to Caesar? What are you thinking? All right, you've explained why you're no longer an enemy of this gospel of hope. All right. So what's your point? Why are you here? He says, well, because Jesus turned me around to make me a witness. Okay, okay, but why are you in our courtroom taking up our docket? Paul says, look, I'm trying to explain it. I'm here because Jesus sent me to you. Now, Festus at this point could be forgiven if he interjected at this point to say, huh? Sent? Wait a minute. We went and picked you up. I don't know if you remember what happened at the time. I, we do have records here, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure you're here because the Jews attacked you and we rescued or arrested you, depending on your perspective, right? You've been here and eating and living on our dime for two years. Pretty sure Jesus had nothing to do with that. We went and picked you up. Yet Paul is sitting here insisting that he is in a Roman prison because Rome's my mission field. Jesus sent me to rescue you. And Festus and Agrippa have to be wondering, what is this guy getting at here? The prisoner's standing here. He's on his way to Nero, basically headed for the gallows. Because, again, they know Nero better than Paul does. And he's like, I was sent to help you guys. It's kind of like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, right? He jumps under the river. He's like, I jumped in to save you, George. It's just like, I mean, it's comically ridiculous. What does Paul have to offer? Only the message of freedom that Jesus sent him with. Look again at verse 18. What did he come to do? He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul says he's here to open their eyes, to open the eyes of these Gentiles. Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, all these business leaders and civic leaders. He's come to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the living God. Paul's implying that they're all blind. He's here to open their eyes. He's saying, by default, you guys are enemies of hope. You don't realize it, but you are. Paul does not accept the idea of neutrality in spiritual matters. There are no honest skeptics. There is no Switzerland in spiritual warfare. You either have faith in Christ or you don't. There's only two camps. He's saying, Festus, look, you may be a decent man and a decent governor. Agrippa, you may be an earnest religious seeker. All of you consider yourselves honorable men and women. But if you're not under God's protection, then you're under the power of Satan. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to help you guys and set you free really bizarre argument to make for a prisoner. He's really turning the tables. I'm here because Jesus sent me to turn you away from a life of darkness so that your sins would be forgiven and so that by faith you would be sanctified. You guys are my mission. That's why I'm here. By the way, I think it's cool how it's worded there. Uh, We tend to think of justification as coming by faith while sanctification comes at least partly by our own efforts, and yet Jesus says explicitly here, like, look, dude, even sanctification comes by faith in me. Every facet of salvation begins and ends in Christ and in his finished work. A blind man can't heal himself, darkness can't create light, so Paul is here to show them a way out. The prisoner has an escape plan for you. And you know what else is amazing about this passage is that Paul never even mentions his own physical blindness from that event. Such a memorable part of what happened on the Damascus Road. Jesus outshines the sun and practically burns Paul's eyes out, and yet Paul doesn't see fit to mention it here. Why is that? I think it's because his physical blindness is actually less striking in retrospect than his willful spiritual blindness before that day, the blindness that came from kicking against the goads. Because physical blindness can happen to anyone, But keeping your spiritual blinders up requires work. So Paul's explained where his hope came from. I never even wanted it, he says. It was just forced on me. And apparently he resisted it for years. He was kicking against it. Paul, even when he was Saul, the hardened criminal and enemy of hope, even then, God was goading him. Jesus, in his mercy, was poking at Paul the entire time. And this, brothers and sisters, is a picture of every unbeliever, the Gentiles that Paul was addressing, or even the fake believer in the pew next to you who's just going with the motions. Every one of us in our natural state is born kicking against the goads. And who is that resistance hard on? Not Jesus. He says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. He's actually quite at peace and comfortable poking you along. He's well out of reach of whatever thrashing you're doing. And it's not just hard as in difficult. The word literally can be translated as fierce, rough, cruel, harsh. You're thinking you're kicking against God, and it's only destroying you. You're literally like torturing yourself. There's a new movie coming out that's a better illustration of all this than Lord of the Rings, I guess. I saw an ad for it uh, about C.S. Lewis's life called The Most Reluctant Convert. I'm going to try and see it when it gets out. But it's titled that way because that's how he described himself. He was a man who knew what it was like to kick against the goads and to eventually be cornered. And I think many unbelievers and many professing believers are good at throwing such massive tam- temper tantrums. And that's where Paul was. Paul was truly a reluctant Convert. He was more blinded by rage and fury than he was by God's glory. But he only made it hard for himself. His kicking was the cause of his own suffering. So, an obvious point of advice, if you're still kicking against God and resisting him, stop kicking! It's hard for you. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably know it. And once you've submitted to Jesus and what he says is his easy yoke and make it your goal to help others, then you can be a witnessing servant sent to open the eyes of others and point all the other stubborn mules like you yourself once were to the only Savior who can free you from Satan's power. That was Paul's ultimate calling. That's why he's here. And that's our calling too. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, as always, for your word. We thank you for Paul's testimony, Lord. We thank you that you give us these extended versions, Lord, where you add in even more thoughts here into your word, Lord, and expand on the story. Lord, we acknowledge that all of us, born in sin, Lord, and running from you, for some of us, for much of our lives, Lord, we know what it's like to kick against the goads, but I I think that... Lord, in a lot of respects, we all do that. Lord, we resist you. We don't really trust where you're trying to lead us. And we'd sooner throw ourselves against the spiky end of a stick than, than to actually go in the direction it's pointing. Lord, we are all stubborn as mules sometimes. I know I am. Maybe stubborn as pigs. Pigs. Lord, help us to stop kicking. Help us not to be so hardened. Soften us to your leading. And help us to point others in the same direction, Lord. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.